0: Today on eyes we're going to focus on the positive. My guest is medical school professor and hospice specialist Ira Bayak MD, a leading medical authority and public advocate for improving care through the end of life. Dr. Bayak is an active emeritus professor of community and family medicine at Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine. He is founder and chief medical officer of the Institute for Human Caring. The Institute drives transformation in clinical systems and culture to make caring for whole persons the new normal. Dr. Biak has authored numerous articles in academic journals and in the popular media. His first book, Dying Well, has become a standard in the field of hospice and palliative care. The Four Things That Matter Most is widely used as a counseling tool within palliative care as well as pastoral care. The Best Care Possible – presents the potential for healthcare transformation. Dr. Bayek lectures nationally and internationally, and clearly the key word in all of the above is caring. Ira, welcome to Humanize. Uh, thank you very much, Wes. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. You know, I was looking at uh, your biography. You began your medical career working in rural health and emergency room medicine. What got you interested in palliative care in the hospice movement? <laughs>
1: well, I, I kind of backed into it. Um, I thought I was going to be a rural family doc, and I went to medical school with that orientation. I was going to be a specialist in general medicine, if you will, cradle to grave kind of work. And it was a way of me being able to live in a rural area. and uh, I was deeply in love with the uh, Rockies, that or the you know Rocky Mountain region, um, and be of service to, to people. Um I loved my training in general, uh, in, uh, family medicine, in fact, and and um, and ended up being training in Fresno, California, of all places, which has one of the best uh, specialty training programs for rural family practice that I know of. In the midst of my internship year, I realized that while this, you know, county academic medical facility. Uh, boat gray, kind of very unadorned, um, always, always with this torrent of patients. Um, while we gave really, really good care, care for people who were expected to die was sort of an exception. And they were, they were kind of literally put down the hallway out of sight. And, and it wasn't exactly embarrassment as much as just this sort of awkwardness that we didn't know what to do with them. What was our role? And and I got involved because that seemed like some sort of strange lapse in our commitment to excellence, and even kind of a lapse in social justice. Like, when did they stop mattering? Um, and so I I just gravitated toward making sure, be a couple of times a day, and before I left at night, that people who we knew were dying on our service got a little extra attention. That was satisfying, but in all honesty, Wesley, what really drew me in was that I realized early on that if I just sat with these people and asked them how they were, occasionally somebody would express a sense of well-being, even though they knew full well that they were dying. And that just fascinated me. Like, what is that about? how how could somebody if I asked them mr Rodriguez how are you doing today look me straight in the face and say I'm well doctor when they're when I, they're terminally ill and they know it and they know it I knew they know it because I had had the conversation with them but some so that really as a as somebody learning about, life cycle medicine. We I, I mentioned cradle to grave. That's the, that was the phrase in family medicine. We want to do cradle to grave care. And we and 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 we studied, you know, uh, human development and family systems theories and sort of this what you know, Erikson's um, Eric Erickson's sort of growth and development models. And and so I was just fascinated by what does that mean? And I actually was obsessed with that idea with that notion for years. Now I'm still fascinated by it, but a lot of the you know you, you thankfully you read thank you for reading the titles of my books and things. I, I actually um, came to some understanding that that the potential for people for human development through the end of life is is real. It's not woo-woo. it's actually anthropology. If you look carefully, there are instances of people who, um, who continue to grow through the end of life. That's for me has framed basically my career, my academic career, but also my career building programs and new models of healthcare delivery and my advocacy and all of that stuff too.
0: So there's really a deep humanitarianism in what you're describing. And that is, and you know, people sometimes think of when there's a terminal diagnosis, well, that's the same thing as dead, but no, dying isn't the same thing as dead. Dying is a different aspect of living.
1: Exactly. Thank you for that. Yeah. Death is beyond life right? It's a lifeless state. I, I, I never have liked the phrase good death. It conflates dying with death. I don't know a twit about death. I, I never never met anybody who convinced me they did. It's beyond my experience, right? But I know a bit about dying because for a lot of years I have hung out with people who are dying. I I have observed them. I've, th- With their permission, I've asked them to, to teach me about what their experiences are so that I can be a better doctor and a better teacher. Um, But dying and death are often conflated in our culture. uh, And, and in, um, in the vernacular, you I'll often see the word death used when really the word dying would have uh, fit better.
0: Yeah. And, and it, it, I think that helps lead to a great fear uh, among the general population of this whole aspect. uh, uh, And, uh, A part of life, which which dying is. It's part of life. Exactly. You know, a lot of times people use the term palliative care, or they might use the term hospice care. Um, Those are slightly different or somewhat different uh, uh, terms in different areas of practice, while also having areas of commonality. Is there a a crucial distinction to be made between palliative care and hospice care?
1: I I think there is, actually. So um, hospice— was the first model of what we would now call palliative care in the United States. Um, But gradually, with the hospice Medicare benefit coming in and with the, um, uh, well, with other trends in medicine, um, it became important that the success that hospice was providing for people who were acknowledged to be dying— and mostly who, for whom um, giving up chemotherapies or further heart surgeries or whatever would not be in their best interest. That model proved to be brilliant in improving quality of life for people who are dying, supporting their families, um, allowing them to be comfortable and, and uh, you know gradually die gently. But it was very restricted because under the hospice Medicare benefit, It's not even enough to be dying to get hospice care. Under the Medicare benefit, you also have to first agree you are dying, something a lot of people are not willing to do, even with advanced mm, heart failure or, or cancer or whatever. And secondly, you have to agree to forego treatments for your condition that might and would be directed at and might be effective at helping you live longer. So we the hospice became bound by this terrible choice. You can have this comprehensive model of care, but you can't have that in your cancer care, or you can't have that and go see the pulmonologist or the cardiologist, right? Uh, And so palliative care grew out of that to say, you know, uh, we don't need to force people to give up treatments for their disease to get this team-based model with expertise at physical pain and other sources of distress, but also at the emotional and social and even spiritual um, realms of experience that people people undergo when they're seriously ill. And it's turned out that that model of, of palliative care can happen concurrent with all of those other disease treatments. And guess what? The data has shown quite conclusively. That it improves quality of life, that it improves uh, the the experience of people's families, not just the patient. That sometimes people live longer when their pain is is well treated, when their bowels are are well managed, when their um, when their emotions are attended to, um, and the costs of taking care of people through the last. Stages of life through the course of a serious illness don't go up with palliative care. They actually go down, even right. though people are getting better care. And the reason being they have fewer crises, they spend less time in the hospital, they get their needs met in ways that don't require, you know, um, hospitalizations or hospital days.
0: Yeah, you know, the um, I've o- often called the uh, Medicare requirement of you either accept uh, life extending or curative treatment or go into hospice, a cruel choice. Uh, and it—and it's a stupid choice. Uh, it
1: really is a nonsensical choice.
0: It makes no sense. I once interviewed uh, Dame Cecily Saunders, who was the founder of the modern hospice movement. What a great humanitarian she was. And she said it, uh, that uh, the American way of financing hospice was like saying, abandon hope all ye who enter here. And it was a reason she believed that so many people enter hospice only a few days before death when, when they're really missing most of the benefits. What do you think about what she said? Well,
1: as usual, Dame Sisley is entirely right. That, that We see that play out all, all of the time. Uh, over half of the people who enter hospice care get it for less than a week. That's you know, Hospice is supposed to be doing end-of-life care. They're actually doing brink-of-death care.
0: And that's a missed opportunity for the patient and the families. Exactly,
1: it's another unnecessarily fragmented feature of American medicine. There, there's lots we can talk about. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of hopeful things that are happening in in my field, certainly, uh, but also in changes in American healthcare. Still to this day, offer us the potential to get things right in major ways. That genuine. Transformation of healthcare remains possible. I don't. I'm not saying one about whether we're going to succeed, but even to this day, I think real transformation is possible. Um, a lot of things worry me about whether we're going to get there, and um, and you know the the even with the change from you know volume based care to value based care, which is we can talk about. That is the macro. Thing that's happening in American healthcare. Even with that, though, which is trying, which is supposed to diminish the impact of of profiteering and the profit motive, still, boy, money and the the influence of money remains really erosive. Uh, and, and it's so odd because we could dramatically improve the quality of American healthcare while significantly diminishing total healthcare costs, but. Instead of doing that well, um, there is real danger that profit motives will, will pervert the whole process and, and will still end up with something that is not what anybody actually wants.
0: Let me talk a little bit with you about the concept of pain control. You know, my, both my parents died in hospice and uh, my father died of colon cancer and, and uh, the spread of colon cancer. And I remember I went into the hospital once and um, he'd had to have a, a blockage of his bile duct cleared and he was writhing in pain. And I said, dad, didn't they give you anything for the pain? And he looked at me and he said, son, I didn't want to get addicted. And, and I looked at him and I said, dad, you're a tough guy. You won't get addicted. Now realize he's dying, right? But that's what he's thinking. And I said, you're a tough guy you won't get addicted. And even if you did, you could beat it. And so then he looked at me and he said, okay. (laughs) And he started getting the pain control. He was never in pain again for the rest of his life. And he was able to have a much, uh, I remember he'd sit out in his uh, backyard in the cactus garden that he loved and he was contemplating life. My father grew tremendously in the last several months of his life, just in terms of the depth of his personhood. Talk a little bit about pain control and how that's not the same thing as hastening death and that kind of thing.
1: Well, of course it's not. It, it's that's that's. Thank you for bringing it up, but it, it's it's not at all the same thing. And in fact, you know, um, uh, effective pain control um, usually improves people's quality of life, their movement, their sleep, um, their nutrition gets better when you can't. You don't have an appetite if you're in a lot of pain, and so you know. If anything, effective pain control helps people live longer, not shorter. As it's, it's, there's no tension there from my perspective. And what what about um, the
0: the people's fears, like my dad had of addiction?
1: Yeah, you know, um, people people who take medication to get high uh, have usually uh, um, shown those tendencies earlier in life. Put it that way, uh, and and like you, I think your answer was perfect. You know, uh, I, I reassure people that if they get addicted, we'll help them get back off. But, you know, I, I think, you know, we'll watch closely, but I, I think you can relax about this one.
0: Yeah, exactly. And,
1: you know, uh, it, it's just silly. But people need that conversation, I think, because, you know, throughout life, they've they've not wanted to, uh, uh, to, to rely on medications too much. And there are other reasons. I mean, I have people who want to be conscious and don't want... Their are mind clouded. Um, um, there is you know there are some um, spiritual disciplines. I mean, there are some large denominations within Buddhism that cultivate clarity and want to be dying clear, and and I respect that, and and it does impact how much medication uh, they will re- accept and how much I even recommend. But even even with that, if physical pain is so strong it's hard to be clear as well and so titrating that or just giving enough pain medication to take the edge off actually can help people be present in the moment be mindful if you will so it's i think like everything else this is an area of medicine that deserves real expertise that de- that deserves you know sophisticated treatments it can't just be relegated and that's that you know, we've gotten over a lot of the humps, but but I'd be less than um, transparent to to say that that the diminution of palliative care within the family of medical specialties does not persist.
0: <laughs> right. You
1: know, we're, we're, there's still this,
0: um, even though it's now a board certified specialty.
1: Yeah, and things have gotten much better. I mean, since I, you and I first met, there's there's been a dramatic improvement. And hell, I'm you know I as as mentioned, I was a full professor. I'm an emeritus professor. I have an Ivy League medical school with with this specialty. Things have come in an enormous way, but you know. I still am very active in trying to make sure that palliative care departments or programs are adequately staffed. You know, I know some quite a few actually palliative care programs that basically have one provider, one one physician and maybe another nurse practitioner and a social worker and chaplain. They're they're kind of one fractured ankle away from suspending service. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't run a cardiology service that way.
0: That's right. <laughs> you know. Now, and and the thing good thing about palliative care and again I've experienced it with both my folks and hospice is that it doesn't just benefit the patient, it benefits the family. Uh, the the uh, family can get uh, some relief, respite care, for example, or social workers come out to help deal with situations. That's right. So so describe that a little bit how it, it is it is uh, and it can be provide, provided in the home. You don't have to be in a hospital. Uh, describe that a bit, if you will, uh, in terms of the benefits available to people other than the patient.
1: Whenever one person gets a serious diagnosis, the family shares in the illness. Right, we are inherently connected, and um, if if your you know spouse or your parent um, gets a diagnosis of let's say pancreatic cancer, uh, everybody shares in that illness. Uh, it impacts all aspects of family life. Plans get changed, of course. Schedules get changed. Priorities um, are are reorganized. Work schedules child care is scheduled, everything changes understandably. and and um, and that persists as the as the illness gets better or worse as it progresses, the family remains part of this illness. Um, it, that's why hospice care as it was developed and palliative care which has grown from that hospice model, um, a, sees the patient with his or her family as the unit of care. Uh, We recognize that you can't improve care for the patient without considering the well-being and supporting the family caregiving functions of the family. So it's something that we bring an interdisciplinary model to. Uh, Palliative care is defined, quite literally defined in regulations and by specialty descriptions as an interdisciplinary model of care that involves physicians, nurses, often nurse practitioners as well these days, social worker, chaplain, often with a, uh, a pharmacist, a clinical pharmacist involved, using occupational and, and physical therapy as needed. And it, and it looks at a comprehensive approach to alleviating suffering like pain and other sources of distress, but also improving the function of. The independence, uh, the mobility, um, and the and the uh, support and for quality of life of the individual with his or her family. So the, you know the meetings, the care planning meetings within a hospice team um, or palliative care team normally involves not only the needs of the patient but discussion of the needs of the family. And supporting them in caregiving and in well-being.
0: And even, uh, I, I, I've I, been a hospice volunteer, and I remember uh, taking being with one patient, and the, um, I don't know the name of the professional, but the woman came in who was in charge of cleaning, you know, bathing the patient, mm. and then she was rubbing cream on him, mm-hmm. and the touch, the man, the look on his face. When he looked at this big, beautiful African-American caregiving woman who was uh, giving, just enveloping him in her love, I'll never forget the look of gratitude and happiness just from the fact she was rubbing cream on his skin because it was dry.
1: Well, and for pleasure too, by the way. It's okay. You know, something that I've also kind of been championing, you know, in, in American medicine, uh, we treat people's pain, but it seems uh, like there's a Puritanism about actually touching people to elicit pleasure. Oh, yeah. man, we don't do that, right? But it's okay, you know. Uh, you can look it up. It, you know, it's morally um, uh, acceptable to uh, be tender and loving to
0: our patients. That, that's actually that's right, and, and people know, respond to that.
1: It's wholesome, and people respond to pleasure. It's okay to brush somebody's hair just for pleasure. It's okay to massage their feet. It's okay to oil their skin. You know, it's okay to play music that they like. All of that stuff. Part of what uh, hospice and now more generally palliative care is doing is kind of legitimizing um, human caring. Yes. You know, I, I love your the the name of your podcast, Humanize. As you know, seven years ago, I founded within the Providence Health System, the Institute for Human Caring. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, in one sense, such a simple, simple thing. And and we exist to drive highly personalized care within this very large health system.
0: Which is- And, which and is, we're making progress. That's good <laughs> to hear because, you know, I think the over-institutionalizing of, of healthcare has made it more remote- from where people really are as they live their lives. Sometimes Absolutely. there's a there's a, a tendency, I think, among specialists. It's why they're so good. Well, I don't see a human being here. I see the liver because I take care of the liver.
1: We're trying to change that, not only in education, but through, you know, making explicit what what quality looks like and what it means. Yep. Um, operationally, um, by bringing metrics to that. So that we're we're trying to use things like the electronic health record uh, and identified components of quality and showing that on real-time dashboards back to k- physicians and clinical teams to say, this is what our, our standards are. This is what the patterns of practice are. Here's your gaps in what we've all acknowledged ought to be components of quality that you're doing only part part of the time with various patients, like having a goals of care conversation documented on a patient's chart before we take them to surgery or before they're in an ICU for more than five days, uh, that sort of a thing. and And using that in a sophisticated change model to help drive toward better quality continuously. And, you know, we, what we're doing, uh, uh, what the, this is sort of the capstone of, the, you know, a lot of the work that I've done as a physician is we're making that operational and tangible, not just altruism. It's, it's actionable.
0: Yeah, that, that that's good. I've got a couple of quotes from you. I, I did a little research here. Uh, you said, quote, the healthiest response to death is to love, honor, and celebrate life, close quote. What did you mean by that?
1: I think, you know, we're all going to be dead a long time. To be honest about that, to be without romanticizing dying and death, for heaven's sakes, the the healthiest response is almost a defiant response, frankly, this that we are going to love and celebrate one another, life in our relationships. Um, that uh, even death, even the force majeure, cannot take that from us.
0: It, it can't take us from being part of the human family. That's correct, right?
1: And- so I want to, I want to exuberantly um, live fully, right. Uh, and die well, and when I mean die well that that's my phrase uh, rather than the good death, I didn't make it up certainly, but right. rather than yeah. the good death, I want people to die well because notice dying is a part of living and well is not just doing it right, yes, to die skillfully if you can, but to die well as an adjective to die w- to to be well within myself, right with myself, right with others, right with the world right with my maker or nature as I leave this life.
0: And and as I mentioned earlier, that's what happened with my father. As he got deeper and deeper into himself and into his contemplation of what it was all about, I watched him just grow. My father was a better man when he took his last breath than he was throughout his entire life, which to me is dying. Well,
1: it it is exactly dying. Well, it's absolutely. So, so perfectly expressed, Wes. Uh, I'm, it gives me chills to hear that. But that is, I think, you know, wh- what I've tried to um, put into the discourse, the, the 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 ongoing conversation within healthcare, and frankly, within our culture, is this notion that it's possible to be to experience a sense of well-being through the very end of life. It's it's not it's not promised. Uh, and and I don't say this in any way to diminish the arduous, often gritty, difficult n- nature of illness and dying. But the fact is that that we many of us retain a potential to grow individually and together through the very end of life, and that must be acknowledged as well. Because we, if we, if that feels too. Woo woo, or too puritanical, or to, to go there, which is just like, oh no, we can't, you know, that's not, that's not what we're called to do, then we actually diminish the fullness of the human condition.
0: I can tell you that it has enhanced uh, the memory I have of my father. And when I look at him, who I, I was blessed with a tremendous dad, but he also taught me how to face my own death in the way he was facing his terminal illness. Here's another one of your uh, quotes. This one's a little more provocative. Quote, dying doesn't cause suffering. Resistance to dying does, close quote. But isn't fighting against the dying of the light, as the poet put it, part of being human?
1: Yes, it is. And I think they're both true. And that first quote was not mine. I, I simply restated it. Um, it actually came from the author Terry Tempest Williams' mom. Uh, and I read that in in Terry Tempest Williams' wonderful book, Refuge, um, where her mom at one point dying from breast cancer kind of opens her eyes. Terry was just comforting her and, and says, Terry, dying doesn't cause suffering. Resistance to dying causes suffering. Because we're all mortal and because we understandably love life and and, and do not want to lose all that life represents, we cling to it which is perfectly normal, natural, understandable. And, and, you know, mostly I support it, but because no one gets out of this one alive, (laughs) um, people gradually learn that um, the cost of staying alive involves often unnecessary suffering and that the path to being well, uh, is at some point to allow oneself to die gently.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: These days we can intervene and you don't have to die gently. We can keep you alive using technology and things and you will die hard. You'll still die. (laughs) So there's that tension.
0: Uh, but there is the the medical uh, and communitarian, if you will, ability to help people die gently. Absolutely. We'll we'll talk a little bit about the assisted suicide movement in a bit. But one of the things I really resent about them is they do. Uh, I think advocates engage in some fear mongering about this issue. The idea is, well, unless you commit a, you know suicide, take the overdose, or get a lethal injection death is agonizing and horrible. And your work is saying quite the contrary.
1: My work and my experience over many years is that people can be made comfortable and allowed to gently leave this life. That it requires planning and competent medical care and well-staffed, you know, palliative care and hospice programs, all of that. But it absolutely can be done.
0: And is done all the time. And you do it all the time.
1: Well, I, I no longer am seeing patients, but we do it in, in our work all the time. I mean, uh, you know, I hope we get to talk about some of what keeps me up at night these days. And that is that the quality of hospice care has been eroded. Since you and I have known each other, um, the, uh, in, in many ways, hospice has grown, but the quality of care has become very uneven. Staffing is not what it should be. Responses to uh, crises in the home are often not at all what they should be, and so uh, I'm aware that. Um, what do you There th- are what do many you think? countervailing trends in yeah, American health. I was going
0: to get that toward into that toward the end of the interview, but since you brought it up, what do you think are what do you think are the trends? These trends, what are they being caused by?
1: There's a lot of reasons, but um, money is a big one. Um, You know, the large majority nowadays of new hospice programs and even the, frankly, the majority of hospice programs existing today are uh, owned by companies, many of them for-profit chain, hospice chains. Um, Many of them these days are investor-owned, traded on Wall Street. Um, A number of them, there's been a recent trend where private equity firms are purchasing hospice chains uh, because there's stable Medicare reimbursement, and they see an uh, an opportunity to hold them for three to five years and turn a profit on these holdings, these are not good for quality. Yeah. It impacts whether you can see a doctor while you're on hospice care. It impacts how many uh, patients a, a hospice nurse is carrying. You know how many, what their caseload is. It impacts their ability to ex- uh, respond to crises. And so while we have the ability to reliably assure people that they can die gently, we aren't always uh, delivering on that potential. Um, And and this has got nothing to do with the assisted suicide movement, except that it it inadvertently actually promotes them in a sense because it erodes confidence. Somebody like me should be telling our listeners that with utter confidence, if you get into a a licensed hospice program, you will be cared for and you will not have to worry about you or your family being unsupported during a crisis. I can't say that with confidence. That,
0: that's a scandal. And and since we're on this issue, um, if somebody, one of our listeners is facing the circumstance where they don't feel they're getting proper care, what remedies do they have? How should they react to that?
1: They have to have high expectations. I want to, I'm trying not to be self-promoting, but, um, but I, you know, I've written a, a, an article. I think it's on the, I'm pretty sure it's on the uh, irabioch.org website called something like uh, what every family should know.
0: Well, that's important um, for people it, to read then.
1: And it and talks about what you should expect. And if you're not getting that, what to ask for and demand. And if you're not getting it, when to fire your doctor or your hospice program. Right. Right. It's not about them. It's about you and your family. And you deserve the very best care possible. So, you know, in many places, uh, Los Angeles, I'm very familiar with these days, but most big cities, um, there are many, many competing hospice programs, for instance. Um, and one thing I say is uh, if, I, if I have to choose, make sure you're getting care from a nonprofit community-based hospice program because they're going to have a board of directors that answers to the community, not to Wall Street, not to shareholders. Right. And in general, and, and uh, there, there's exceptions to everything, but in general, they're more likely to be better staffed and um, you're more likely to see a physician if you need one. They're they're more likely to, to be more responsive. But if you're not getting what you need, you need to fire them and go to a different Agency,
0: right? And I've suggested because people ask me that all the time that before you select the hospice, make sure that the hospice uh, check their their reputation, but also get into the value system that you have and and the hospice's value system. Right. Uh, that way, they'll be more likely to have a good match. Tell our listeners about the Institute for Human Caring. You've referred to it, but let, let's let's uh, let them get a hint. Of what it is, I know you you could spend hours on it, but what it is you're really trying to oh, yeah, accomplish but, uh, I'll
1: just I'll just tease them. Um, you know we have a we have a website too, and you can google Institute for Human Caring and come right to it. please, please do. It's fun. Uh, you'll you'll en- you'll enjoy the little tour through what we've built. Um, the Institute for Human Caring is a group of about thirty people now. Um, we are um, uh, clinicians, most of us with backgrounds in palliative care, but also educators and and uh, health systems change experts uh, and, and analysts, you know, data geeks. And we drive change through this health system toward highly personalized care. Now, about seven years ago, I approached uh, several health systems in Los Angeles with an idea to... Um, in the move from volume to value, you know, at the time Romney Care had become Obamacare, and we were moving uh, from from um, fee for service or quote unquote volume based care to this accountable care model or value based care, and and that's still going on. It got slowed down because all of that became politicized, as you know, um, but it's still going forward and and there's really very little disagreement among doctors or health economists or quality geeks like myself or payers the insurance companies that this is the this is the future value based care everybody that's one place everybody basically agrees in the move from volume to value i approached a number of health systems and said you know the model of palliative care actually provides an ex- exemplary model for Value-based care, better quality at lower costs, partly because um, um, this model of um, having this interdisciplinary approach to improving people's uh, comfort, their movement, their function, their independence, their self-care um, uh, really is saves money. It saves—you you avoid crises, um, you um, extend life, but people— use less time in the hospital to live better. Right. And the, you don't have to stop hospitalizations hardly. I'm a, you know, I I practice most of my life in a hospital. Um, but, um, but when we can meet people's needs at home or in a less acute environment, they're going to feel better and they're, they're going to spend less money. Right. So, I approached uh, a number of health systems to say the knowledge and the attitudes and skills that we now call palliative care provide a model for value-based care going forward. Not just for and the dying,
0: but for, for the entire patient population. For
1: everybody. For everybody. If you as the hospital system and the healthcare system are responsible not only for the patient's health and well-being, but also for their all of their healthcare costs then you want to listen to them, not just offer them treatments, right? Right. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I've I i I've said to a lot of the leadership in American healthcare is the most expensive treatments we provide in American healthcare are those that it turns out people would not have wanted had we paused and had a conversation.
0: Oh, that's very interesting.
1: But we do it a lot. Yeah. We do it. It, it's a and in the fee for service system, it served us financially to do just that. But in a value based system, it costs us money to continue to treat people's diseases as if they were they were not owned by a whole person living with it.
0: Right. I I don't want to. We're not going to turn this issue, you know, this uh, interview into an issue of su- assisted suicide. Um, But I do have a question about this. You know, one of the reasons I am so down on the euthanasia movement is I feel that it has actually blunted the advances of hospice and has created a situation where the media seem to be more attracted to the idea of somebody receiving an overdose. The Brittany Maynard case is a perfect example. Um, uh, And and for listeners who may not know, uh, Brittany Maynard was a young woman, tragically came down with brain cancer. Uh, and she moved to from California to Oregon uh, because she wanted assisted suicide and didn't want the hospice uh, experience. In fact, she never even tried the hospice experience. And I remember, Ira, you kind of got caught up in that that whole case uh, because I believe it was ABC invited you on the morning show to not to talk. No,
1: it, Di- it was Diane Reem.
0: Diane Reem, okay. Uh, to not to talk about Brittany's case. You weren't giving opinions about her condition, but to Try to explain that even with brain cancer, that you could provide comfort and 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 benefit to the patient. And I remember you caught hell <laughs> from people. Well, I got <laughs>
1: yeah. So uh, you know, I've been on Diane Rehm a few times, and 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 she's been long been a proponent of uh, legalizing physician hastened death. Um, uh, in that interview, we were not supposed to be talking about Brittany specifically. We were we were supposed to be talking about. You know the the issue in general, but they had compassion and choices, and, and Diane Reem colluded, and they they tried to sandbag me. Well, they did a pretty effective job, I guess, because they um, they had a uh, they had taped Brittany uh, taking me to task by name, uh, and and Brittany was a very very um, uh, engaging figure, a, a, you know, a, a wonderful young woman um, who who well, was passionate about. This issue, but she was being exploited by um, Compassion and Choices, you know, uh, with her with her permission, with Brittany's permission. But they were still, you know, frankly exploiting her in ways that uh, that I thought were unwholesome. And I and I took Compassion and Choices to task, and they turned around and 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 made it seem like I had attacked Brittany, which of course I would never do. What like why would I possibly exactly? Castigate a, a, a woman with, you know, in this condition. The assisted suicide movement gives people the illusion that they can make death and dying tidy and avoid suffering. And they've changed the subject in a way that that does diminish this sense that we can integrate illness and dying within healthy living, and a sense of well-being. If we can assure you that you need not die badly, that you can be clean and comfortable, your family supported, and you can die gently, then it would seem that hastening death with with a cocktail of lethal medications would not be necessary. I think both are true. You, you just said you think that the assisted suicide movement has eroded the growth and and evolution of hospice care. And I I do think that's true, but in all honesty, I think that the erosion of reliable, high quality hospice care has probably supported the assisted suicide movement inadvertently
0: as well. Both could be true at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that, that raises a question, and it's something that I often think about. It's the why now question. You know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, if you got bone cancer or if you had a burst appendix, you could die in agony. And yet back then, you didn't hear a lot of talk about, well, let's have euthanasia or assisted suicide. Today, when we've had tremendous advances brought about by people like Dame Cecily Saunders, by Dr. Ira Biok, and by many others, um, that now we're talking about assisted suicide when pain can be controlled, when comfort can yeah. be preserved. So I, I'm, I'm, I, I have my own theory on this, but I'd like to know what your theory is. What, what is your thought about the why now? Question. It,
1: it, I think we've been talking about it to a certain extent. It, it is it is a remarkable irony, though, isn't it? Um, it's just it's just remarkable. What we lack is the commitment to bring the technical expertise and the comprehensive models of care uh, to bear to to really, you know, operationalize best practices. Uh, what we're seeing is, in fact, um, short staffing, a lack of commitment on the part of, um, you know, leaders of American healthcare, leaders of health systems, um, to provide the best care possible to people, um, so that they can, you know, um, uh, rest assured that they and their family will be well supported. And so people are rightly worried that they may be abandoned. I, I hate to say that, Wes, but that, you know, it, it's, it's undeniable that there are people who, whose suffering, whose needs could have been met, whose suffering could have been treated or avoided entirely, who instead suffer needlessly.
0: <sighs> and this is and all driven by stories. I mean, you know, if somebody, I mean, I, I got into this whole anti-euthanasia movement because I had a friend commit suicide under the influence of Hemlock Society. I've, I've debated people. Uh, who are pro-euthanasia or pro-assisted suicide because they had a loved one who experienced the very thing you described. Right. So it almost gets to the place where we need to we need to, if you're going to avoid the idea of that proper end-of-life care is giving people overdoses or lethal injections, we really do have to have people underst people not only understand that that the kind of care you've been describing can happen, but there has to be example after example after example so that when, when people are talking over the dinner table or when they, they go visit their friend who has been diagnosed with an illness that they can see vividly in their own experience and in the experience of their loved ones that there can be that gentle death, as you put it. Correct.
1: I think it's, a phenomenon that involves social cohesion. Yes. People who are seriously ill and their families once were assured that the community they lived in would respond to their needs. And I'm not trying to romanticize some, you know, golden past. But it is actually true that there was more social cohesion then than there is now. I mean, look at the polarization uh, and the issues around masks and vaccinations these days. The lack of social cohesion is so erosive. Um, So people, frankly, aren't getting the wraparound support that human communities, healthy human communities, naturally provide to one another.
0: You know, in an earlier uh, edition of Humanize, I uh, interviewed the bioethicist Charlie Camosi of Fordham University, uh, and he said that he blamed some of what you were just describing uh, on an increased secularization of society. Uh, I'm not of the opinion that that religion is required for any of this, but do you think that the secularization of society has kind of led to more of a technocratic view of human life as opposed to a holistic one?
1: Yes, and I, as you know, have worked closely with faith communities that strongly oppose physician hastened death, the legalization of physician-assisted suicide, and other models. And it's long been... My observation that they're very good at explaining what they're against (laughs) and far less effective at showing what they are for. Right. Right. If faith communities really wanted to step up and and provide a counterpoint to physician hasten death. They, in addition to writing the op-eds and, and, uh, and, and filing the lawsuits and countering the citizen initiatives in the legislation, they would build models of caring where, where you you know, you could not hardly die alone that you would be lifted up by the commu- the faith community to which you belong that you would never get lost that you would never feel abandoned that you would never feel undignified or or in some way unworthy and frankly um they ha- very few of them have done that
0: yeah you have a few orders of nuns and so forth who do that very well But, but you're right. And, and it shouldn't be just a matter.
1: You know who does it best best of all? I have to say, I'm going to, I'll surprise you with my call out here. All right. But in American society, I think the, the people who do it best are uh, the Latter-day Saints, the
0: Mormon community. Oh, Hey, I know that's true because my last hospice patient that I was a volunteer for who had ALS was a Mormon, was, was a member of the Latter-day Saints. And, The reason he was able to stay at home is the women's auxiliary would go over to his house and I'd be there and two women would come and they would help him pee. And it was so important to him and that allowed him to stay at home so his wife could continue to work and support the family. So you're absolutely correct about that. You
1: know, in those, in those hospice team meetings, those interdisciplinary team planning meetings which is part of what makes is the magic of hospice it's the special sauce where everybody gets together from different disciplines and problem solves and creatively uh helps develop a comprehensive plan for the patient and family care um when when whenever over my years of doing those meetings if a patient was part of the mormon community if they were more they and their family were mormon everybody you could see everybody around the table go oh good (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah and because exactly
1: and one these people these people take care of one another
0: one of the other things they did the things that would get uh, his name was bob very depressed as if he felt like he was off marginalized on the outskirts of life as he would put it and uh apparently in the latter day saints um uh, theology men are supposed to give sermons and he was incapable because of his paralysis of going to the church to give sermons. So they brought a video team into his home and he was able to give a sermon and fulfill his obligation as part of the church. And I can't, that did more for him than medicine. Yeah, it really
1: did. So it's just an example that community works. You know, you've heard probably uh, me say this, that uh, I, I always think of the word community as a verb, you know, we kind of live in community. Yeah. Uh, with one another rather than merely in proximity to one another. And I think, you know, to get this part of life right, we really do have to reinvigorate that sense of social cohesion and living in community with one another. Right.
0: We're running out of time here, and I, we've talked about your worries. Um, but what gives you hope?
1: So through the Institute of Human Caring, we're actually doing what I used to call wagging the dog. We've attended to providing comprehensive caring for patients and families with serious illness and use that model to say, well, we can we can drive far better care, highly personalized care, better patient experience uh, through this health system by using that same approach and, and look at the cost savings that we could derive from giving better, more genuinely personalized care. So with without skimping an iota on quality as as defined by better patient experience, using technology artfully, actually beginning to um, use the capacities of the electronic health record in in a way that they were actually designed to to actually genuinely diminish workload and and craft the, a record around somebody's Personhood, not just around their problem list, that in in bringing sophisticated design to uh, healthcare of the future, we, we can begin to deliver on the potential for better care, better quality of life within the context of families and and households and communities, um, and do so in a way that is operational and economically
0: um well, smart. So that would work in in a time of strained resources that's actually the way to go to uh to help that issue as well as help the issue of people having proper experiences when they're when they get caught up in the healthcare system. Yes,
1: we could we could still redesign our fragmented dysfunctional American healthcare system to um give to provide much better quality without skimping on on cutting edge diagnostics and therapeutics, and maybe by backing down a few percentage points from uh, the 21% of our gross domestic product that we're now according to healthcare.
0: One last question. If somebody, one of our listeners, is facing a terminal illness or they have a loved one uh, who's been so diagnosed, what would you suggest they do?
1: I'm a big believer in second and third and even fourth opinions Uh, Life is precious. You want to get the very best uh, diagnoses and treatments um, for your condition so that you can live better and live longer. But, um, But I would suggest that one of those opinions be with a palliative care team. So that you can, not instead of, but along with treatment by good disease specialists, have the benefits of, of, expertise for your comfort and your quality of life and your family support.
0: And that's the the team that would never say there's nothing more we can do for you. You bet. Right. You bet. All right. I, we're out of time, but I want people, if they want to reach you or read your work, uh, you, uh, you mentioned a website earlier, repeat that. And sure. also any other information you might have that if people wanted to reach out to you or, or read about what you're up to, uh, they could find out.
1: Thanks. Well, you can get to me through irabioch.org. That's just my first and last name, .org, O-R-G, I-R-A-B-Y-O-C-K. .org. .org. Um, there's many of my writings are up there, um, lots of st- lots of stuff that's of interest, including things like that article, uh, What Every Family Should Know. Um uh, that's all accessible. I write for the general public very intentionally. And then the Institute for Human Caring, uh, it'll make you smile. Uh, some of the work that we're doing to try to humanize and transform healthcare in a, in a very authentic way. Um, and um, and you can get to me through either of those places. Thank you very much for your interest and attention.
0: Well, thank you for being with us. And thank you for joining Humanize. Ira Bayek, MD, uh, you're a true humanitarian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.